As the dust settles on the 2020 elections, discussion of what happened in them has largely centered on the contest between Donald Trump and Joe Biden for the presidency. But control of Congress was also up for grabs on Election Day. In the House of Representatives, Republicans picked up several seats, but not enough for Democrats to lose their majority there. The new Senate will include at least 48 Democrats, that's 46 Democrats and the two independent senators who caucus with them, and at least 50 Republicans. Which party controls the Senate, however, depends on the outcome of two special elections in Georgia. Democrats will take control of an evenly divided Senate if they win both races thanks to Vice President-elect Kamala Harris's tie-breaking vote. But does it really matter which party controls Congress next year? Will the House and Senate still be dysfunctional? Or is a change in Congress's partisan balance of power just what it needs for its members to get back to work? Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast about how our political institutions are failing us and ideas for fixing them. I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. I'm Julia Azari. I'm an associate professor of political science at Marquette University. And I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. Well, hey, guys. Uh, we have a special guest today who will, who's going to help us think through these questions. Um, Philip Wallach is a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and the author of a fabulous chapter in the forthcoming edited volume, Congress Overwhelmed, the Decline in Congressional Capacity and Prospects for Reform, which is edited by our illustrious co-host, Lee Drutman. Kevin Kosar and uh, Tim Lapira. Welcome, uh, welcome, Phil. It's been a it's been a while, and for our listeners, Phil and I used to work together, and we saw each other pre pandemic on a on a regular uh, basis. I miss you dearly. But just tell us a little bit about what you've been working on and about your your chapter in this book. Well, thanks, James. It's good to be with you, and it's good to be with you all. Um, my chapter in this book is called "How Congress Fell Behind the Executive Branch," and basically the it's an attempt to ground the rest of this volume, which is mostly about uh, the contemporary Congress in sort of a, a, a long historical arc. And of course, the main arc that the title conveys is that over the course of our constitution's history, we've seen the executive branch grow and grow and grow and expand its influence in a number of ways. And Congress has sort of as rules struggled to keep up and, and, and fallen behind by any number of metrics. That's sort of the top line story. And so what I try to do in the chapter is show that it's, it's not just a single trend line, um, but that this is a story with some vicissitudes in it. And Congress has from time to time um, sort of decided that it needed to Discipline the executive branch in in one way or another. The most the most interesting example to me is right after World War II, with the Legislative Branch Reorganization Act. Um, Congress really tried to reinvent itself to be capable of overseeing the executive branch that had grown so much larger. Um, but uh, it, we haven't had a moment like that for a little while. Uh, congressional reform folks. Uh, of which I count myself as one, are, are always looking eagerly to see if this might be the moment for a, a, a new reckoning, um, but we'll have to wait and see. Lee, you're the one of the co-editors of, of this volume, and you know, I want to turn it over to you now and see, I mean, do you have any burning questions for Phil, like why it took him you know, so long, I'm sure, to get his edits into you? <laughs> um, but you know, can you tell us a little bit about the 
the book itself and 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 uh, you know do you what do you think about you know Philip's uh, chapter in there and, and his work more broadly? Yeah, so the the book which will be out um, in December from the University of Chicago Press is um, it's called Congress Overwhelmed: The Decline in Congressional Capacity and the Prospects for Reform. You know, and it you know it, it brings together a lot of leading congressional scholars, including you, James. Uh, we have a chapter from you too, and trying to wreck, uh, you know, kind of really reckon with the decline of Congress as an institution uh, and the decline of congressional capacity specifically, and that means many things in, in different chapters and the volumes, and kind of think about the prospects for reform. Uh, you know, and and over the next few months, you know, hopefully we'll we'll have a, a number of of those authors on to discuss various aspects of the book. But it was you know it was a, a project that that goes back a few years to try to bring together a bunch of different scholars who were kind of thinking about different aspects of congressional capacity independently uh, to kind of work together. Uh, we did Tim Tim Lapira did a bunch of interviews with congressional staffers. Uh, we also conducted an original survey of congressional staffers. So there's a lot of rich data and there, a lot of rich analysis um, that, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll dig into. Um, you know, but the, one of the things I, I want to talk to Phil about, and because I know it's something that he's been thinking a lot about, is the idea of, like, why, why a Congress at all? Like, you know, I think sometimes we have these conversations Congress needs to be stronger vis-a-vis the executive, or Congress needs to reassert its constitutional role as the first branch of government. But a Congress is is distinct from a president in that a Congress is a they and a pluralistic institution that is capable of representing the, the broad diversity of a country in a way in which a president isn't. And Phil, I'd love to kind of like, get your, you know, macro historical understanding of Congress as a pluralistic institution and the role that a pluralistic institution plays in a democracy that a, that a president can't play and how we might think about Congress becoming a more pluralistic institution, or if that's even what's necessary for Congress to be functional as an institution. I mean, the question is whether as a highly partisan institution, uh, that just tries to represent whatever party controls the House or the Senate, Congress can't play the role that it's really supposed to play. Well, there's a lot there, Lee. Uh, let, me, let me try to come at it this way. A lot of things that people are frustrated about in Congress and naturally recoil from in many cases are the very attributes that, that make Congress indispensable to our constitutional system. Um, and so, you know, people think that members of Congress are so parochial, uh, that they're, they're so devoted to the, the local interests of, of their constituents. And that's often brought as a kind of criticism that that means they aren't going to be able to transcend that perspective and look at the national interest. But from my point of view, um, that parochial nature of congressional representation is valuable because it means that those representatives are grounded in the people's concerns in a way that sometimes the president is not. The president 
of course, as people like to say, is the only nationally elected uh, figure in our government. And that gives him a claim to a, a kind of representativeness of the whole nation. And certainly sort of in the Wilsonian tradition, that claim to represent the whole nation is taken to be somehow superior. But to my mind, the president has a tendency to kind of float away into abstract concerns. And the Congress is really much better suited to keep, to keep what the federal government is doing grounded in the lived reality of the American people. Um, and we hear Congress criticized as cacophonous, sort of so much, uh, so much noise, so much arguing, so much conflict. And I, I'm, I'm sure James has talked to your listeners' ears off over the years. I'm, I'm a, a convert to the Walnerian way of thinking that actually conflict is a good thing. And having Congress be a place where conflict can actually play itself out gives us a chance to sort of digest our differences instead of trying to just suppress them. Um, but none of that is to say that the Congress we have right at this moment is really performing those functions fairly well. Uh, we, we, we hear a lot about the increasing nationalization of American politics and a, a, of Congress, which in my mind kind of means all we do is have Democrats versus Republicans fighting this different aspects of the culture war all the time and, and hurling insults at each other and not really even having any expectation that they're going to get through many problems. Um, and uh, that too, if, if everyone is just taking their role as a, you know, a bit player on team D or team R, then they're, they're not as much representing those parochial concerns anymore. Uh, and, and so that's a real loss. So, um, you know, I don't wanna overstate the point, Congress is not entirely dysfunctional today, uh, but it has a tendency not, not to sort of look at itself seriously. It, it, it has a tendency to underestimate its own place in the constitutional system. And its members end up um, sort of thinking of themselves as, as folks who show up and cast votes like their leaders want them to and sort of ratify agreements made off stage. I mean, in this, in this year of the pandemic, that's often been sort of what did Chuck and Nancy work out with the Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin? And, and then after a little while, uh, the Congress comes and, and, and ratifies that. Those were some big important laws that got passed that way in, in March of April this year, March and April of this year. But, um, but in general, my sense is that the current Congress is, is not living up to its constitutional responsibility of of, of airing the many kinds of grievances and concerns that animate uh, the American people. And uh, we need to get back to that because otherwise we end up sort of having suppressed conflict that finds other ways to boil over. Julia? Yeah, I actually want to pick up on this question of nationalization. So I obviously am I'm coming at this from someone who spent a lot more time with the presidency than with, with Congress. Um, and I made this case on a panel on presidentialism last week that that the kind of empowerment of the presidency in, in the United States is a story of 
the nationalization of American politics. And so I'm curious if we could if we could break this down a little bit in terms of what's happened in, in Congress. So I have a couple questions here and they might they might all sort of converge on a couple themes. But one is 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 the expansion of partisan teamsmanship that you've described, kind of showing up and voting with the leadership, is that a product of nationalization? Is it a is it a byproduct of nationalization? Is it the other way around? So what is the what is the connection between nationalization and um, party polarization? And the other question that I would love to hear more about is is kind of when. And I've really gotten interested in what I see as a kind of emergent debate among people who study the the development of Congress about how much of this can be linked back to the Gingrich reforms of the 1990s versus, you know, for example, we talk a lot about Frances Lee's work on this podcast. Her argument is that it actually dates uh, back to 1980 and the Republican takeover of the Senate for for six, six years at that point that kind of showed Democrats that they could lose power or, you know, is it maybe at some other point, maybe it dates back to the reforms of the seventies or to the civil rights era, or, you know, who knows? Um, wow. Wow. Was with the counterintuitive argument, but those I think are, are two questions that come to mind as I think about where Congress fits into the, the picture of nationalization and partisan polarization. Well, those are both really good questions. Um, I, I think on the, which way does nationalization run and, and sort of which way is the causality running? I think it's most often people think, oh, well, we've, we've actually sorted as a nation, as citizens, we've, we've sort of gone in different directions and Congress as a representative institution is just sort of following along. I mean, I wouldn't deny that, that some of those dynamics are very important, but I'm keen to argue for the other direction of, of causation, which is that something about the way that we've structured our national political debate has actually made it more difficult for regular citizens to conceive of themselves as rooted in uh, interests and concerns that, that are apart from this bipolar dynamic that we are so familiar with at this point. And, you know, we all know that better informed citizens tend to sort of line up more strongly along the political beliefs, but that's sort of, that's a function of how our political parties seek to socialize their own members today and their own partisans. I mean, the idea that a party has to be so, um, sort of all together on the same points rather than big tent. Big tent is a metaphor we used to hear a lot uh, in terms of political parties. And you don't, you don't hear it so much today because nobody wants people who disagree with them very much. The idea is to sort of educate the people so they get all on the same page. Julia, your when question I think is really interesting. Um, I agree with Francis Lee quite a lot that when you go back and look at the congressional politics of the 1980s, it's already starting to sort of take on a shape that seems very familiar to us from, from our 21st century dynamics, um, especially uh, under the speakership of, uh, of, of Jim Wright. In the latter half of the 1980s, um, you really see the House becoming rancorously partisan and sort of the flip side of, of, of right 
exercising power with, with a fairly iron fist is, is the rise of, of Newt Gingrich uh, as the voice in the Republican Party that says, hey, we're not going to uh, go along to get along anymore. We're going to figure out how to throw a lot of punches and take, take the House back for Republicans. And I, I think ever since that moment, which is from, you know, each of our childhoods, uh, American politics has been has been shifting to this nationalized team mode. And it, it, it didn't happen all at once. I think it's the 2010s are the culmination where really people have a hard time even imagining that there could be such a thing as a liberal Republican or a conservative Democrat. Those were still common uh, people to find on the American political scene not so long ago. But today, I think young people learning about politics today kind of would just think that you're talking nonsense if you try to say those terms. So I, I, I would say to me, the 1980s and, and yeah, the, 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 the sort of sense that the two parties were in this mortal struggle for control um, that Francis Lee does do a nice job of, of describing, that does seem like the breaking point to me. It seems odd, though, that if we have this existential battle for control of the House and Senate, that suggests that the two parties would think that control of the House and the Senate is, is important because of what you do there. But what seems interesting to me is that the parties aren't actually behaving inside the House and Senate like we would expect them to behave if we grant all of these priors about um, the polarization, the partisan competition, and the, uh, and the, and the sheer value of, of majority control in these chambers. It's just not there. There's this glaring disconnect, it seems to me, um, in how we think about the institution, how its members perform outside of the institution, and how they perform on the inside. But now that we have an idea of the role that Congress plays in our democratic republic, and, uh, and the extent to which nationalism has or has not impacted the House and Senate's ability to play that role. You know, let, let's shift our focus to the, the actual Democrats and Republicans who have served in the Congress in recent years. And, and how have Democrats and Republicans and the majorities that they've had performed? You know, what did they do? And, and what does that tell us about what we can expect Democrats and Republicans to do in the House and Senate in the 117th Congress? Well, James, let me connect this back to what you, what you were saying before your question also. I think people in Congress have come to think that the real work is done elsewhere, which means that the Senate is much, much more important than the House because it has the ability to do executive branch confirmations and judicial confirmations. And I certainly think if you look at um, the, the last half decade in particular, um, it, it seems like the whole point of Congress, as many of its own members see it, is is to see who gets to win these confirmation fights. But and let me just jump in real quick on that. And I think you're right. But even there, the, the data is a bit, tells a bit of a different story. If you look at the judicial confirmations in particular, which appears to be the, the Republicans kind of trump card, no pun intended, in their, you know, in their kind of platform of, you know, vote for us so we can vote for these other people who will then do stuff in the judiciary. The vast majority of judicial nominations have been confirmed with bipartisan support and not just like two or three members of uh, Democrats voting, but lots of Democrats. And in fact, in September, the most of the judges that were confirmed were Democratic selected judges that the president then nominated. And you see this in the fact that a majority of Republicans are voting against them. 
And so even here, the record of the of, of Republicans and Democrats is not as partisan as we would be led to expect by the way in which we kind of cover and study this institution. Well, with the big exception to what you said being the Supreme Court, which people seem more and more preoccupied by and which has seen four nominations in a row treated as partisan dogfights, right? And that's an unusual pattern in, in, our, in our nation's history. It's not, not totally unprecedented. There have been some moments before as in the, the 1870s, uh, I think when, when Supreme Court nominations became very bitter political contests, but it has not, it has not been the case um, even, in this, even in this recent era of, of partisan rancor. So it's really, I, th I think a lot of people focus on that and, and I don't think they're wrong at the end of the day. They, they think uh, these, nine, these nine judges are exercising incredible power uh, over some of the questions that concern people most and that sort of touch on this main vein of the, that culture war uh, most directly, and, uh, and and that's where you can see these partisan dynamics most clearly. Yes, but I would you know I would also just point out that most of these cases have to go through the district and circuit court levels as well, and so it, it stands to reason that those are equally important. But I agree with you on the focus on the Supreme Court, and and Barrett's nomination was the only one that was a strictly partisan affair. Even with Merrick Garland, Democrats had every uh, procedural ability to force votes on him and enforce consideration of his nomination early on and all throughout that debate. Um, and and they, they acquiesced to what Republicans were doing because I, it was a bipartisan desire, I think, or lack of a desire on both sides to actually have a, a, you know, his nomination considered, which was interesting to me. But what can we expect, you know, thinking back to, you know, what we've seen and then looking forward, I mean, what do you expect to happen here in the next, you know, next Congress based on how Democrats and Republicans have comported themselves in Congress in, in recent years? You know, there's this, this great phrase that folks in Washington like to trot out. Uh, I believe it goes back to the economist Herb Stein, which is if something can't go on forever, it won't. And it seems like the dynamic that we've been living in can't go on forever. Uh, and so it seems like we should be waiting for something different to break out somehow. Um, but here in the moment, it's hard to see exactly what it is that's, that's going to break us out. So, I mean, it's certainly possible that supposing that Joe Biden is inaugurated in January, that he sort of leans heavily on his experience as a legislator who was interested in, in actually figuring out how to generate coalitions in Congress and as someone who was, who sort of cut his teeth in an earlier era of politics um, that wasn't all about this national partisan fight uh, all the time. You know, and, and it was really interesting to me, the exchanges that he and Kamala Harris had in the Democratic primary debates, where, where Joe Biden was saying, I can remember working with these conservative Southerners uh, who, who were so important in Congress 
when, when I showed up there and uh, I liked working with them and uh, we could get things done together even though we had profound disagreements and Kamala Harris in those debates saying, well, that sounds, that sounds like bad behavior from our morality uh, of 2020. We shouldn't wanna do that. And so seeing how that dynamic will play out in the Biden-Harris administration will be really fascinating because I think Biden himself may, may have some instincts that, that try to push the system more toward compromise, more toward coalitions of strange bedfellows. Uh, and what I would see is a, a more functional representative politics. But I think there's a lot of other elements in his party that to me look like the more energetic parts um, that, that are likely to be pushing against those inclinations and, and trying to sort of keep us locked in and focus immediately on how do we put the Republicans back on their heels for the 2022 midterms? So that we don't lose the house then. Uh, and so that we can figure out how to gain a, a, a bigger advantage where we could actually push through more of the progressive agenda. Um, I don't know which of those two, which of those two tendencies is gonna win out. Can I speak to that for a second? Sorry, um, I'm gonna jump out of turn here. But I, I wanted to ask a little bit about this because I've also been thinking about these dynamics within um, within the, the Democratic Party. And it seems to me like there's, it's not just that this is a kind of dimensional policy space fight, but it's a fight about how we, you know, how you fundamentally think about, um, about, politics and compromise. And I think that if I'm remembering the debate you're talking about correctly, I, I feel like one of the things that Harris was trying to do by kind of telling the story of, of being being a you know child uh, during the desegregation period or the busing period or whatever it was, that these that these kinds of compromises have losers. Um, and they're not just about they're not just about producing legislation, but that they do end up having the people whose interests are are kind of pushed off the table. Um, and that is not to say that that shouldn't be done or that people shouldn't think pragmatically or work with those who disagree with them, um, even even profoundly. Right. But I do think that that's one of the things that's changed in our politics. Um, and I, I want to just offer this counter framing because I often see this as framed as purity versus compromise. And I don't think it's purity versus compromise exactly. I think it's how we think about who is inevitably left out in a compromise. And is it always, is it always the same groups? Is it always that? And there's a case to be made for this through the 20th century that it was frequently a lot of stuff gets done at the expense of communities of, of color and, you know, at the expense of marginalized groups and the expensive issues, the kinds of social issues that divide us today were just simply not on the table. And I think related to this, I wanted to ask about No Child Left Behind or about the, the spirit of No Child Left Behind, um, because this strikes me as one of the last really high profile, strange bedfellows pieces of legislation. I'm sure I'm wrong about that. And there's other, there's other examples, but this strikes me as, as one in which it, you know, it looks like this kind of bipartisanship that's not only it's not just a meeting of people in the middle, but it's truly a strange and kind of cross ideological coalition. And it's just, you know, a piece of legislation that is immediately a problem on a lot of levels. And so that's one of the things I wonder about is I've talked a lot about the connection between politics and policy. And that's one of the things that I wonder about. And I wonder about with the Biden administration is, um, you know, the pursuit of these sorts of coalitions to make policy for the sake of it versus the pursuit of coalitions that really do 
address um, real problems with with workable solutions. And I wonder if there is anything in your work that that speaks to kind of this this policy politics problem or to the um, the creation of, of these strange coalitions that then lead to legislation that actually doesn't really fix the problem it's intended to address. Well, I would not be one to stand up for the policy design of No Child Left Behind in particular. All, from the time that I learned about it, um, pretty early on in the 2000s, it seemed like a transparently stupid design uh, to me um, with its escalating targets of attainment going up to 100%, such that no child would left, be left behind and any school that didn't get 100% attainment being labeled as failing. And, and that predictably turned out not to work out so well. And by the time it was obvious to everyone that it wasn't going to work so well, sort of that coalition that, that managed to put it in place right after September 11th had sort of fallen apart and wasn't there to revise the law and fix it up and make it workable. And so we had this long period in which we were operating through waivers and sort of executive branch kludges, which was far, far from ideal. Um, but I think I have the sense that I wouldn't make the case that Congress is always going to be a fount of wise or efficient policy. And in, in some ways that's, that's not the point, but that it actually, does something very important for our national character and our sense of, of who we are as a nation if we're able to form these coalitions and take these efforts to try to address these big problems as, as failing schools certainly were a big serious problem that deserved to get addressed. If we just, uh, you know, there are certain libertarians who say, well, all Congress ever does is, is make things worse. So what we should devoutly hope for is that we should pass as few laws as possible because that'll pretty much be the best. I just think that's a crazy idea about what our nation is. I mean, that's, that's just profoundly despairing view. And if you don't think that sending elected representatives to get together and try to work through problems and do their best to design policies that will make them make things better and then go back and revisit those policies when they don't work as they inevitably won't, that's what self-government is all about. And we ought to still believe in that ideal of self-government, uh, even if it sometimes seems difficult in the modern complicated world. Um, and so just looking at any one policy failure isn't enough to dissuade me from my belief in the importance of that ideal. Lee? I, I want to go back to this idea that maybe members of Congress should be more parochial. Uh, and which I think would take us back to the 1970s when you know, a lot of political scientists were writing about how members of Congress were so focused on re-election that they supported all these wasteful spending, pork barrel projects, and sort of didn't have any sense of collective responsibility. And all they were doing was just looking out to make sure that we got a firehouse in Topeka or, you know, or, or a bridge somewhere to somewhere or maybe... Or or nowhere. Uh, or nowhere. Who knows? You know, as long as it's a bridge, that's that's the important thing. Uh, you know, but now now we're but not. Nowhere is somewhere. Well, yes. Well, wow, you just blew my mind there. Um, well, we're at, at wherever. The point is that we used to build bridges and now we're not building bridges. And now all our bridges are falling apart, uh, both literally and metaphorically. So 
I want to kind of wrestle with those criticisms of Congress from the 1970s, that Congress was an institution that was too focused on parochialism and wasn't able to think collectively, you know, and also understand like what were the, what were the political conditions uh, within the parties, within the nation that allowed for members of Congress to focus primarily on their districts as opposed to on being good foot soldiers in a partisan war? Was it, you know, to me, it seems like it was just the, the nature of the party coalitions at the time that allowed for that, as well as the particularly weak national parties kind of shifting from one one alignment to another. And so it would be very difficult to create that in the contemporary Congress, given where the parties are and what the potential possibilities for partisan realignment are. So I mean, I guess that's really two questions. One is what about the the parochialism of the 1970s, and two, what are the prospects? If parochialism, or or at least more parochialism, w- would be good, what are the prospects for getting more parochialism? Okay, so. I think the Congress of the 1960s, where these committee chairmen had so much power and especially so much negative power to, to, to stop things, you know, it had its own very profound set of problems that the reformers of that era took aim at and mostly swept away. And so I think that the problems of, of that era were real, uh, but they're not the problems of our, of our era. And from where I sit, we could do with some more of their kinds of problems and some less of our kind of problems. And, and I, I guess I see that as a kind of a pendulum and we need to swing back in the other direction, which isn't to say that we would like to get exactly back to, to, to where things were, which is impossible in, in any case. But I guess to me that the central dynamic here is who has the agenda control power? And back in in those Congresses of half a century ago, the committee chairmen had tremendous amounts of power. And and that was committee chairmen who had their jobs by virtue of seniority. And in practice, that meant a lot of members from the South, where there was essentially only one effective political party at the time. And today, I would say the agenda power is just very, very firmly lodged in the leadership of both chambers. So if you don't if you don't have the leadership interested in, in getting something to a floor vote, then they're going to find ways to keep it from getting one. And I think they exercise very strong negative agenda control in keeping away any kind of compromises that would divide their own membership. Um, and so you see a lot of a lot of different issues in immigration being one of particular note where you just don't get a lot of chances for Congress to sort of figure out creative solutions and see if you might find some kind of two thirds of the Congress coming together and accepting some compromise because that two thirds would be splitting both parties down the middle. And so both leaders, both parties leaders have an interest in, in blocking those kinds of issues from coming up. And so to me, how do we get back? How do we swing the pendulum? It's all about figuring out some reforms that would take at least some agenda power and give it back to the committees, which I think in turn would make rank and file members feel that they had an opportunity to do a lot more meaningful work in in those committees 
and that they weren't just coming to Congress to cast some floor votes and, 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 and then call their colleagues nasty names. Um, there would be something more meaningful for them to do that would actually flow into legislation some reasonable portion of the time. That's my basic vision of, of where I wanna see Congress go. Let, less power for the leadership, more power decentralized. Well, we're, we're running out of time here, but you know, maybe for one last lightning round, I want to pick up on what uh, Phil's just uh, shared with us and just ask Julia, you, and then, then Lee, and then you know, maybe I'll speculate very, very briefly, but then turn it over to Phil for the last word here. But on looking ahead, what, you know, what, what do you fundamentally think the problem with Congress is today? And then how, what's the, the short answer on how, how to fix it? Um, and Phil's kind of given us a little bit of it already, but, but let's start with you, Julia. Yeah, I, um, I like Phil's suggestion of, of the reform being about shifting agenda, setting power to the committees. I, I mean, as I'm sort of thinking about the fights within the Democratic Party right now and the kind of the behavior of the congressional Republicans we're recording on, on November 20th, 2020, um, very few congressional Republicans have uh, publicly acknowledged President Trump's loss of the election at this particular moment. And that's really sucking a lot of air out of the room. And so I keep going back to something I've said and writing it on this podcast before, which is that as much as we talk about institutions, I think a lot of our problems are are also substantive. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that institutional changes can get at some of this stuff, but I'm not necessarily optimistic. And I just, the, the thing that came to mind, I'm really in a mood this morning. And the thing that came to mind really, as we're thinking about party politics is not terribly serious, but it's kind of where I'm at, which is a quote from Lewis Black. Um, that's something along the lines of the Republicans are a party of bad ideas and the Democrats are a party of no ideas. And like on some level, and this is from a long time ago, this is at least 15 years old, but on some level, when I look at what's going on in Congress in particular, that's sort of how I feel. And one of the things that, you know, I think that all the institutional reforms in the world aren't going to help us until both parties start actually trying to, to embrace and have good ideas. Um and I think that that quote sort of gets at the at the different problems between the two. So that's, I mean, as I said, not maybe not the most erudite and serious answer, but that's sort of where I'm at right now. Lee, yeah. So I think along similar lines as you, Bill, as you as you know, that we ought to have a more decentralized Congress in which committees play a larger role, independent of leadership. But every year, members of Congress vote on who they want the Speaker of the House to be, who who they want their, the majority and minority leader in the Senate to be. And every Congress, they pick somebody who promises to centralize power. So there's something going on there with the individual members who seem to prefer this arrangement. And, you know, there may be reasons why they prefer this arrangement. Well, certainly there are. But it you know may also be something about the types of people who are running for Congress in this moment. Uh, and... You know, I, I mean, I look at who some of the, the freshmen are in both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. And, you know, they're they're not people, for the most part, who are coming to Congress 
uh, you know, some of them are coming to Congress to work out deals, but, you know, a lot of them are coming to Congress to be partisan warriors because that's what being a member of Congress means these days. So, you know, it, it almost feels like there needs to be this tremendous shift in the attitudes of people who are in Congress, who are running for Congress, who are aspiring to be leaders within Congress. Uh, and, you know, and, until you get that shift, we're just going to continue to do more of the same. So I, I don't know how you affect that that shift, uh, you know, within the, the current two party system framework, which is you know why I'm such a strong enthusiast for reforms that just create a, a totally different you know, party system, which I think would would allow for more of this decentralized bargaining. But that's my crusade. And you know, for me, just as a rule of thumb, the way I uh, the way I think about reforms, and I'm not going to really speak about any specifics, is you know, just do they facilitate and make it easier for members to act, or for their constituents to force and to push members to act, or do they make it harder? And if they make it harder, my guess is they're probably not going to be very effective. And if they make it easier, they may or may not be effective, but it, but it, it'll certainly make things more interesting, and it'll help facilitate, I think, that dynamism in our system that we have seen time and time again in the past. Uh, but with that, I'll turn it over to Phil uh, for the last word. Well, you've all said a lot of, uh, of good things. I think for the last word, I'll just say this, which is that a lot of smart people who are interested in politics today have just gotten very used to thinking of, of Congress in incredibly uh, cynical and, and pejorative ways. Um, they, they basically think of Congress as a, a nuisance, uh, that sort of stands in the way of, of, of getting things done. And basically when they think about congressional reforms, they would like, mostly they think of ways to shrink Congress's profile to, to get, to make it easier for Congress to fall into line and get with the president's program. And I can understand that perspective. Um, and I, 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 I understand their frustration given the way the Congress has operated in, in recent years. So my main last word is just, it, we need to use a little more imagination and, and a sense of uh, our nation's history can help us uh, in seeing that Congress really can be something different and can play a role that the executive branch can't substitute for. And we ought to be focused on, on regaining a vision, a positive vision of, of what Congress ought to be and I think if we all sort of use our imaginations and start to think about what what sort of this more constructive Congress looks like, it would really help Congress move itself in that direction. I, I think uh, if we all if we all wallow in the despair uh, too too deeply, we may sort of lose sight of that and just find more ways of making Congress more marginal. And to me, that would be a, a real betrayal. Uh, of some core constitutional principles. And we should stay positive, uh, difficult as that sometimes is, when I'll leave it at that. Well, those were great last words, music to my ears, and this has been another episode of Politics in Question. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute, and our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly.
This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.